Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Chris Toombs back with us for a catch-up. Chris was with us during the podcast's infancy for episode 9 in December last year, and I've been meaning to get him back on the show for a long time since. So on today's show, we'll be building on the velocity-based training insights he provided us with last time. So if you're feeling rusty or VBT is new to you, then consider going back to that episode first before playing today's. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyses them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald, and here's the conversation between myself and today's guest, Chris Toombs. I'd like to welcome back to the Informed Performance Podcast, Mr. Chris Toombs. Chris, how are you, mate? Yeah, thanks very much for having me again, Andy. It's um, Yeah, we've had a, a fair few episodes since the last one, and yeah, you've had some pretty esteemed guests, so I'm looking forward to our second conversation. No, it's good to have you back. And Last time you were on the show was uh, December last year, I think, for episode nine. And we spoke about VBT, something we'll hopefully expand on a bit more today. But for the listeners' benefit who may be discovering the podcast or perhaps even yourself today for the first time, can you just outline your background? Yeah, I'll give you the short version because um, I think we're going to talk about some of the areas that I've reflected on over the past uh, six months or so. But 25 years basically working in the fitness industry and strength and conditioning as a uh, a coach mainly who's worked in professional rugby in England, Wales and the United States through Leicester Tigers, the Cardiff Blues and the Seattle Seawolves. And I've also dipped my toe into working with professional cricket teams in Leicestershire and Northamptonshire. And I guess, yeah, three three years in um, in academia as well, working as a lecturer in strength and conditioning alongside some part-time coaching of uh, semi-professional rugby players and a professional downhill mountain biker. So yeah, 25 years in 25 seconds. Good mix. And uh, I saw you've been living up in Bermuda recently with the London Royals. Um, What have you been up to more recently? (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So, so COVID has been an interesting challenge for us working in professional sports. So I guess over the last six or seven months, I have managed to get a coach education business off the ground, which is called Pegasus 85. Um, essentially a company looking at the practical application of theory and trying to get as much immersive learning as possible um, face-to-face as opposed to as opposed to online and content. And I, yeah, I managed to secure myself a short consultancy trip to Bermuda with the, the inaugural World 10 Series event that, that ran uh, COVID, COVID-free through multiple COVID tests on, on sort of every other day, it seemed like. But yeah, I mean, it was one of those sort of weird things that the, the 10 series is, I'm guessing, going to um, build out over the next year or so in terms of offering players opportunities to travel the world and, and play on the circuit similar to sort of the World 7s. And um, I guess almost maybe, without being too controversial, competing for for that space in terms of the, the commercial realities of, of rugby and where rugby may or may not go in the in the near future, given the sort of precariousness of Olympic qualification and if the Olympics 2020 
runs in 21 or or not and yeah offering offering i guess rugby players another avenue to to showcase their skills and and remain professional it's interesting because we had mike friday on not long ago and he kind of said a similar thing that um that world sevens at least needs to sort of consider going more commercial and having a kind of franchising string to it for the teams so um yeah it's interesting hearing you say that as well from a different angle no, I think that's definitely something that was um, was talked about across the, the seven teams who made it onto onto Bermuda. It's it's one of those things that there's some unbelievable athletes, and I was, I was like I say fortunate enough, I guess, to to inherit athletes and manage them over a, a three or four week period, as opposed to develop them or or build into a specific kind of tournament schedule. But yeah, it's it's going to be it's criminal if those athletes actually get lost out of professional sport with with the abilities that they have and I hope that there is a a vehicle for them to showcase whether that's sevens in the future or whether that's world tens in the future that's down to the commercial realities of of those who who put those events on and I'm sure world rugby will will take a look at sevens in the future and world tens are looking to commercially go into that kind of entrepreneurial and, and corporate space to to get their funding and and you know privately you know run teams that can compete on the world stage and at world level so it's a it's a fun project for them and it's great for people like me to be involved because yeah traveling Bermuda in in winter sun from a UK standpoint is an absolute pleasure you know sitting in your shorts and t-shirt in October and November is is certainly something you're not doing in the UK so yeah brilliant really really great positive experience some great lads and yeah the rugby was a pretty high standard as well so win 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 Pretty good uh, work gig to get with current times of travel, like I said. Um, just to rewind <laughs> yeah, a little absolutely. bit, you um, you mentioned your um, your new educational venture, Pegasus, then, and you kind of said you're you're doing face to face education rather than online, which is of course what we're now kind of exclusively uh, used to with COVID. Um, you know, as somebody who's got their ear to the ground with education, have we, you know, besides COVID, have we maybe gravitated towards theory a bit too much with education or kind of weekend education? sort of strength and conditioning and performance? Yeah, I think there's a difficulty. Don't get me wrong. And this is certainly something, you know, we're, we're recording a podcast right now. So that's a, that's a <laughs> platform of, no, but it's a platform of learning that's obviously of huge value. And there's some amazing, amazing practitioners sharing some fabulous insights online. And obviously this is a digital, um, you know, way of scaling your, your messaging and telling people and sharing your experiences and your levels of expertise and all that sort of stuff. And there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But funnily enough, I had a conversation this week um, with somebody around the they're worried about a course that I'm running that may or may not run because of COVID restrictions and government guidelines and lockdowns and all these other sort of things and um, and basically the guy asked me if it was going to go online and I kind of I wasn't flippant or anything I was just quite matter of fact to say you know the the way the course is structured is it's it's theory at the front end to kind of give you the the foundational um, underpinning science but the majority of the course is practically applied and inevitably sort of understanding velocity loss and reps in reserve and fatigue and all the things that hopefully we're going to talk about shortly, feeling that, knowing what heavy looks like, knowing what heavy feels like, knowing what heavy can can be, um, you know, objectively measured against in terms of bar velocity and all those sort of things. Yes, I could put videos together. Here's a profiling protocol. Here's a jump protocol. Here's a Here's a set that demonstrates, um, you know, a certain velocity loss or a specific adaptation that we're asking for. But in terms of actually learning and being able to practically apply some of the messaging, being coached, having coaches coach other coaches, 
being immersed in using the technology as as an interface has to have that kind of real world face to face connection as opposed to just a, a YouTube sort of demo video for me anyway. And that's that's where I think we're not losing our way as such as an industry, but there's a lot of people who consume digital content or at least purchase digital content, but then do they even consume it? And I'll, um, a case in point would be someone like myself downloading a ton of um, research papers and maybe reading a third of the ones I download or even buying, you know, a course online and getting halfway through it and then not completing it. That's even someone who's in the coach education space consuming someone else's product, but even not following through because there's all these other distractions that, that actually kind of compete for your time. And then when it actually comes to the real learning for me, anyway, it's coach, it's face to face and it's practical immersion. That's going to help me as a coach, hopefully become a better practitioner. Yeah. And I mean, I can relate to that even with the, the physio side of things where I'll ask questions in the clinic that I then answer in a more practical environment in the gym intuitively and kind of experientially when you can, like you said, like kind of feel the movements or feel the loads. I think, you know, clinic, clinical education especially can be very academic at times. Um, but I find actually the practical nature of a gym is a good place to solve the problems you think of theoretically. So um, no, yeah, it definitely resonates. No, and I think to, to sort of reinforce on that, and it's it's almost that group discussion piece as well. Almost the, the five or six people maybe having a conversation around a problem will come up with probably – um, a better answer than maybe maybe a one one on one situation, or even just you you digesting someone else's content and not having someone else to bounce ideas off to actually you know provide yourself with a better solution long term that might actually fit the fit the problem that you're trying to solve with a bit more effectiveness. No, completely. No, good point. Um, you know, you've returned from the high life in Bermuda to the UK, which is obviously in a second lockdown <laughs> as we record today. Um, I'm interested to know how have you uh, attempted to be productive or develop during this kind of unpredictable year as a, as a coach or professional? Yeah, well, well, patience, patience has definitely been something that I've had to, to learn to be to be better at. Um, at. But also, I think I've just undertaken a, a task, and I did publish it online, and it, it is available in the big wide Twitter sphere world. But I've done some actually some reflective some reflective practice, and also something by which I guess through reflection and almost auditing uh, my kind of coaching process, I tried to, um, I tried to fit two, 25 years worth of coaching into, into a 250 word summary. And it was just, I don't know whether it was just irony or just whether it was something that um, happened by, by design, but it, it kind of ended up being 12 C's and without reading off the whole, the whole 12 C's. It was kind of my my map of my map of the performance world that started with um, collective intelligence and and ultimately using everybody's everybody's kind of intellectual property within a room to actually upskill and push push a team forward. And it was kind of um, I guess it's how my my coaching process has evolved over the, over the years and how I've kind of refined my own coaching practice was is actually to involve a lot more people in the process. And when you're a young coach, potentially you're always looking at your your Russian squat program as being the sort of answer to everybody's problem. And as I've as I've kind of got older and been exposed to more coaches and also more players of high level, I think I've I've kind of gone to different areas of performance to try to improve performance. And the pillars, the pillars that used to really interest me were strength and conditioning, the end. And now and now it's it's skill, it's psychological resilience, it's physical prowess. Those those sort of pillars of performance are now much more 
multifactorial. And I guess this is a this is potentially a lesson for for younger coaches who who I've seen through my kind of university lecturing days, where they were so so. Um, and this isn't a bad thing. It's just where they are on their learning journey. They're so so hung up on the exercise selection and the exercise order and the and the kind of Excel spreadsheet, and they're not really thinking about well, actually, how will my strength and power programming influence transfer onto the field and on field performance? And again, that whole kind of reflective process is actually um, has got nice little dovetail into velocity based training and how um, looking at fatigue and and you know re- resilience has actually an impact on transfer onto the field and I think that when my mentality changed from I want to get my players faster stronger bigger leaner whatever whatever it may be that was just physical when I actually thought much more methodically around tactical technical psychological physical and is everything I do within the program actually improving the player and not just the athlete that's when I just had that kind of aha moment that actually maybe I need to do less and not more can I take thing? Can I take things away from this program to make that player better? Will will doing five sets of something versus four sets of something actually have an improvement on their player performance or a detriment to their performance? And ultimately, that's where, as a relatively curious and and someone who's using data to underlay some of their programming decision making, I became a better practitioner because I was actually like, can I do less to improve that athlete's you know speed scores readiness? Um, you know, freshness, whatever, whatever it may be that can can actually improve their their game day performance. And I guess that's where that's where the integration of technology comes in, the monitoring comes in, and and actually trying to refine your professional practice to the point of what can I take away to make this player better, and can I validate can I validate that with data, so that if the coach comes to me and says, oh, I only see the players doing half an hour's gym work. I can I can comfortably say and confidently say that's absolutely fine because this is why if we do less in the gym but of higher quality then we have no detrimental impact on their jump scores or their speed scores so I'm actually making the athlete better at transferring those physical capacities onto the field to make them a better player then does it matter if I do an hour in the gym 90 minutes in the gym or 30 minutes in the gym if the 30 minute option is the best option then, then I'm kind of validating what I'm doing because I'm making them a better player. Does that make sense? No, completely. And I think also it gives, I, you're equipped with a, a number or something visual that you can actually just show to the coach beyond you just explaining it. No, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that I spent some time doing. And I mean, yeah, I mean, looking at everybody else for me, and I think we just brought it up just before the show. Is December a good time to look at your, your look at and reflect on your professional practice and, and actually audit your or even have someone else audit in a, in a good in a good way because you can ask you for your critical friend to to actually ask you some questions about your program and and help you make better decisions going into the next year on on what's been done really well what what do I need to what do I need to keep what can I get rid of and and what do I need to do better I think if all the coaches go into the new year with that sort of mindset. Then, um, then their then their professional practice will be in a better place when it comes to delivering, you know, p- performance services to their athletes in the coming year. I'm curious: has anybody else, you know, having seen that you've done your 250 word piece, has anybody else kind of shown you or uh, done one themselves that they've kind of told you about, sort of following your, um, following your actions? I haven't had many. I had a couple of conversations around it, and a couple of people did mention that it was it was a good exercise to do. Whether or not they've done it themselves is uh, 
remains to be seen. But I might actually, following this conversation, I might actually re- repost it and um and ask and ask others to do the same because I just think from a from a coach of you know two decades worth of experience in in sports sharing some of these messages it might not be applicable to everybody and i know you've had guests on before and and we've got this kind of contextual specificity different people in different environments have got their own constraints and their own challenges but at least some of the some of the um key points or key messages that i might share actually may stimulate some thought for others to do to do the same and also like i say refine their refine their process refine their practice and and become better coaches as a result of it and yeah selfishly it'd be great to see other people's work as well because no doubt we can we can steal some nuggets of gold from from other people's reflections as well no and hearing you talk about it it's actually something that i'm sort of you know on a side note thinking i need to do this myself hearing you talking about it so yeah i'm sure there'll be other listeners um similarly thinking the same way hopefully great well i hope hopefully they will and hopefully they'll share it yeah um let's get into the uh, the main event of today's uh, sort of talking points of uh, velocity based training so Last time you were on, we spoke about the, I guess, the basics of VBT and how different systems compare or calibrate against each other. And how do you use kind of VBT to select loads prescriptively? Um, so last time we were talking a lot about um, Tendo units, uh, linear units and wearable units like push. There's now sort of more than ever an increase in camera-based systems entering the market like Elite Form or Perch. Have you had a sort of play with any of these systems and i'm just kind of curious to know your your impression of, of them yeah no i'm very fortunate i've got a decent relationship with um with elite form as well as um being involved with push i'll, I'll caveat that at the front end so uh, you know no conflict of interest no um skip cronin who's the ceo at um at elite form kindly lent me a a camera-based system when i was at the university of south wales and i've had um oh yeah i've had a play around with that and i've had a play around with with most of the with most of the technologies that uh, are available, I haven't used the perch system yet. But from what I gather, they're um, they're a pretty decent and well put together um, resource, especially given I think their their humble beginnings at MIT, which is you know an institute of technology. So I'm sure they've um, they've done their their due diligence when it comes to manufacturing a pretty high end unit. But I guess Andy, what we've talked about is. Or what I talked about before was its price point of entry, isn't it? And the constraints that certain budgets may may or may not have. And I guess again, COVID is going to be one of those things that impacts on um, performance programs, ability to spend money on things like velocity-based training units. And if um, if the person in charge of the purse strings looks at the, the price point of entry at I don't know upwards of five thousand dollars a unit for a camera-based system versus three hundred and fifty dollars for a for a push band and associated, you know, subscription costs for for like access to portals and what have you, then um, yeah, financial decisions will probably be the thing that is the is the key constraint for for many different programs. I think the one thing that the sort of the smaller um, accelerometers offer is is the is the accessibility to more coaches, which is what I'm finding when it comes to doing the sort of velocity based training courses. You're having um, independent contractors coming in as opposed to team S and C coaches, and they're having, they've got, you know, a, a finite budget to spend on performance technology. They're going to spend it on a three hundred and fifty dollar unit as opposed to mounting a mounting a perch unit in their in their power rack. So, I think those are the sort of challenges that we have as as S and C coaches. It's um, convincing the the money spenders that a camera system is infinitely better than a a push band or vice versa. 
I think that's your challenge. But from what I gather, they're supposed to be really, really, really good um, good systems. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed the user-friendliness of an elite form camera-mounted system and the, and the interface that they provide for their, um, for their VBT tool. Let's um, let's expand on the the sort of VBT lesson that you provided in episode nine a little bit more. Um, a common talking point, I guess, that we've had recently on the show with Sergio Fonseca and also uh, between Ben Ashworth and David Opar last week was this idea that uh, periodic testing doesn't always provide us with sufficient information and that we need kind of a more continuous live monitoring system in place for information. And I want to merge this with something that you mentioned in episode nine you raised the point that you're looking at a swing of up to 18% on any given day for a one rep max. So in reference to looking at an athlete's continuous fluctuations or live state to train, if we call it that, using VBT, how does this kind of recent topical thread for the podcast resonate with you? Yeah, I think the continual assessment and, and ultimately understanding where, where a player is on any given day is going to have massive implications when it comes to um, the acute the acute loading strategy and also the accumulation of um, load and subsequent fatigue and I think that's the key Brian Mann's work and the and the eighteen uh, percent swing in in kind of I guess neuromuscular readiness for any given day that's where I think the the value lies in in actually prescribing um, the appropriate dose and the appropriate load on any on any given day and objectively being able to um, make those modifications in in real time. And it's a difficult challenge because it depends on the size of your squad. It depends on how much how much technology, how much uh, hands-on expertise, and how much even the athletes engaged in that process that's going to make this um, kind of data capture, um, you know, have the value that you hope it has. Yeah. Because because ultimately, um, if I'm managing thirty players in the gym and I have three. Um, push bands for example in my particular um, case I, I turn around to deal with one athlete and athlete B has already jumped on a bar behind me and you know done whatever they've done and I've kind of of course I've missed it in the real world it's you know we're, we're dealing with um, 20 to 30 something to want to get into the gym and get their work done before I've even ter- turned my back to pay them any attention so I guess it's the there's a manpower challenge, and that's where some of the units that have the kind of cloud-based technology offer enormous value because every time someone does an activity um, and you know puts their names into a, a certain interface, they they can they can capture their data without an, a coach necessarily needing to be present, and then retrospectively, coaches coaches can go look back at that data historically and go actually, um, you know, we maybe missed a trick with this particular athlete, or or maybe that athlete could have lifted a bit heavier today, or or whatever, the, or whatever the metric that you're trying to, to you know, gather may, may or may not have successfully been, um, been kind of uh, captured at that particular moment in time. But if you're, if you're standing over an athlete and you're wanting to um, gauge, for example, their, their sort of normative data across a specific lift that they do sort of week by week and consistently across the season, then um, yeah, you get a you get an instant snapshot of where that athlete is, maybe based off their final preparation set. Or in my case, I'm I'm pretty biased towards a, a hex bar deadlift, for example. If I know that um, someone's got a you know a daily moving one RM of around about 200 kilos, and I know that they always do a sort of three plate, a uh, 140 kilo or a 315 pound 
you know, final preparation set before they actually go into their their main lifting for that day. And I know, for example, they might move that at 0.75 meters per second. Just say, let's make some maths easy. Mm-hmm. I can I can then sort of you know, apart from tracking it and you know reporting it and building spreadsheets and all that other stuff, at least I've got a snapshot of where that athlete is on any given day. And if they're in if they're in that ballpark of okay, they're lifting 140 kgs at 0.75 meters per second, um, I know that they can kind of proceed as planned or proceed with modification and all the modification will be in this case is they either feeling like it's going to be a good day add add five percent feeling like it's not such a good day take five percent off and then let's see in in set one of their working sets whether they're in the sweet spot of of what we're after and i think um you know adding an extra layer to this i think a lot of people are talking about um velocity loss as as a kind of key metric in terms of whether you're actually delivering the the right amount of stimulus to provide the adaptation that you're you're after but also i think um the more and more i've got into this myself and the more and more um the interface on push for example is giving you and um and showing you in a, in a graphical um format how how steep the slope of decline is from rep to rep that has massive implications again on not only um, your ability to recover intraset, as in between this set and the next set, but also um, intra, I think intraset, sorry, but intraset in terms of what's going to happen in two days' time. If you have a very structured um, training week for various reasons, one of them being that you've got constraints of how, how much time you've got in the gym and, and on any given day. Traditionally, rugby players probably train on a Tuesday and Thursday with any real intent and any real kind of opportunity. So, um, if I overcook someone on a Tuesday by selecting an inappropriate um, loading, you know, scheme, then chances of them recovering effectively and optimally for Thursday's training session is going to be negated by you um, prescribing inappropriately. Okay. Mm-hmm. Versus if we can get the dosing right on Tuesday, then our athletes and the science validates this, which is great. Are more recovered and more optimally primed and ready to do a second lift on a Thursday, then the Tuesday and Thursday lifts are actually adding up the kind of accumulation of training units so that they arrive on Saturday, which is game day and the most important day of the week, as optimally ready as possible. It's not as easy as, um, you know, Tuesday plus Thursday equals amazing results on Saturday, but at least you're giving yourself the best possible chance. Whereas if you overcook Tuesday, overcook Thursday, how are you expecting an athlete to be ready on Saturday? And I think that some of the some of the insights within VBT nowadays are, are offering much more around velocity loss as a driver to create the adaptation that you're after, alongside remaining the or keeping the level of freshness in your athlete so that they can add these training units up together does that make sense yeah no it does and i think one of the things i'm aware of at the moment is that you know more and more strength coaches uh understand and definitely use velocity-based training now but i think the on the maybe on the physio side of the industry people are still very much used to percentage-based loads when they're looking at kind of strength and conditioning um from afar or in their rehab what's the kind of current state of the literature on sort of percentage-based training versus velocity-based training? Has there been any kind of changes in understanding or I guess any in- interesting reviews or papers come out on that? Yeah, no, there's been some great stuff over the last two years, actually. And I think I've got a name, I'll name check a few people. They're all big. There's Harry, there's Harry Dorrell in the UK. 
who's done some recent work around comparing percentage-based training and velocity-based training. Um, Harry Banyard, they're not all called Harry, by the way. Uh, Harry, Harry Banyard um, down in Australia has done some work around that as well. And there's um, Jonathan Weekly. I'm not quite sure which university he's at anymore. But he's done an amazing review of velocity-based training in the last um, 12 months regarding kind of the whole snapshot of theory and, and application. I think those, those three guys, particularly, and Steve Thompson in, um, in Sheffield as well, doing some great work in, in VBT. But also, yeah, the comparison of percentage-based training and velocity-based training, I think you've, you've kind of touched on it already in terms of um, trying to lift to a prescribed percentage based on a one rep max that you may or may not have completed two, three, four, five weeks ago, your your kind of um, your numbers are definitely going to be are going to be out because I think the the, the way velocity allows you to almost um, not necessarily successfully predict a a one rep max on any given day, but your one rep max today is going to differ from it tomorrow and the next day and the day before and the previous day, and I think that's where the eighteen percent swing in in any given day or any given week um, comes into this. And I think that's where the objective markers that VBT can provide you can have that real insight and that real sort of added value. But I mean, the, the reality of the literature is that you can pretty much do potentially half the volume and still get the same amount of, um, of output. And I think that is a, that's a massive sell to, to sports players who are using the gym to improve their sport and not just going to the gym because they like going to the gym. And I think everything that we do as performance coaches in, in, in elite sport, especially, is, is driven by the decisions that you make to make a player better as opposed to the decisions you make just to get them stronger in the gym. Because as I said at the beginning, we've got to have um, transfer onto the field as one of our kind of key performance indicators as opposed to, okay, so-and-so squats 200, now they squat 210. And the, and the diminishing or the, the yeah, diminishing returns on, on your investment in terms of the difference between 200 and 210 may look great on your spreadsheet and the arrow pointing north saying you've made them stronger. But in terms of your return on investment, how much longer did it take them to get from 200 to 210 versus doing some more work in the sort of strength speed range or the, or the more um, kind of performance specific or, or, or um, game specific kind of target velocities that will actually have higher higher kind of carryover and transfer to on-field performance. I think that's where that's where as SNC coaches we can become much more kind of targeted with our our session design and our and our prescription because mm -hmm. we can specifically dose in the speed strength range, the strength speed range and the maximum strength range depending on what that athlete needs at any given time during the year. So the idea that VBT can prompt us to increase or decrease load is, you know, we've already mentioned is is well understood. Um, how do you kind of use VBT to manage the perhaps cutoff point or the volume of a particular day, um, you know, with fatigue in mind, how do you kind of practically do that? Yeah. So I think one of the first things to do is, is take two steps back, which is where we talked in our, in our first episode about profiling athletes and having a, a really deep understanding of, of kind of where the athlete's strengths, strengths lie. And I know that's uh, in terms of um, looking at their sort of whole force velocity profile and making sure that the appropriate dose for any given session is actually starts at the right point, which is where you're going to look at your, um, your things like your last preparation set before you go into your, your main working sets and being at that, 
that certain speed level that we've we've talked about already. So you know whether the athletes and what I consider a go day or a slow day and where you're going to have to modify up or modify down. So I think the challenge you've got is um, is then getting the dose um, or the strength uh, prescription right from from the off. And what, what I mean by that, if you've got someone who's trying to develop uh, maximum strength, then uh, historically you're looking at something like a velocity loss of up to 20%. So if you get the loading wrong at the beginning of that process, then what you're going to find is you're going to have, you're going to find that an athlete gets um, fatigued way, way earlier if the velocity loss is greater than 20%, which ultimately, um, I guess, starts with um, inappropriate, inappropriate loading because it's either too heavy or too light. And, and then you're going to have uh, an element of residual fatigue that goes into the set two, set three, or however many sets you've got planned. So I think that's, that's the first point. So for me now, I've always got almost a buffer of bandwidth put into my, into my programming. So I understand the normative data and I understand the normative data for exercises that I kind of prescribe on a regular basis. So as, a, as an example, the hex bar deadlift, 85% of, of um, daily, daily one rep max is, is in around 0.5 meters per second, which is also the, the sort of zone where, you know, developing that strength quality starts in terms of looking at it against a, a velocity-based measure. So if I know that they lift their first rep of their first set at around about 0.5 meters per second, I know that I've got my loading for that day pretty much bang on in the sweet spot, in the middle of the sweet spot. And ultimately, if I've set my, um, my alarm to go off on my device where um, velocity drops below point, uh, velocity drops to 20%, then I know that I'm going to get anywhere between three and five reps, depending on how fresh that athlete is on that given day. And that's going to be the, the sort of deciding point on where I go with sets two, three, four. Mm. And whether I stick with the load that I've in, initially prescribed or whether I'm going to take some off or whether I'm going to add some on. And I think that's where if you build in reps in reserve and you kind of tie that into the, the athlete's RPE and you have some normative data around some of those numbers, you'll then be able to prescribe really accurately to multiple athletes in that, in that kind of um, specific lift, bearing in mind that minimum velocity threshold is exercise specific. So a squat and a, and a hex bar deadlift align quite closely, but a conventional deadlift and upper body exercise have their own. MBT, and that's something to remember as a as a coach who's prescribing off off a velocity. Because if you're you're prescribing off the wrong kind of minimum velocity threshold, then you're going to be skewed from the outset. One of the things I'm curious to ask you, and this might be a bit of a mean question, mate, is when an athlete kind of walks in the gym hypothetically, do you prefer to, I guess, kind of systemically, if we call it that, screen the athlete's velocity for the rest of that session, or do you prefer to do it? Um, you know, main lift specific. And, and the reason I ask, I guess, is I'm wondering if there's a scenario that you might may have seen where an athlete can kind of present perhaps fresh at the beginning of a session, but there's perhaps a grumbling injury waiting to happen, something bubbling up under the surface. So there's a, there's maybe a particular movement in the gym that they don't want to do because something's cropping up, but they are sort of neuromuscularly fresh. Otherwise, do you, you know, do you prefer to screen early in the session or do you prefer to kind of use vbt on a lift by lift basis you know because that could happen i guess as a hypothetical situation no absolutely and i think i i generally use it for a key lift in a session and, and no more than that so if, like i say for me the the lower body bias is normally a a hex bar deadlift and the, the upper body bias is 
is avenged best, funnily enough. But um, yeah, then I don't tend to then use the velocity-based training tool for for much more of a session. Yeah. It may it may be if I want to get something specific out of um, the other strength qualities where I ne- I need speed as the focal point, then I'll and I'll use it for um, jumping or or throwing. But ultimately, it's the the main strength exercise of the day. But also, I think Andy, one thing that's quite interesting, and in, in you going on about kind of athletes being banged up and neurally fresh, it actually works sometimes uh, the other way around, where because you've got access to objective uh, markers and objective numbers that guys who come into the gym kind of not feeling like they're in the mood to lift will actually be driven by outputs of other people and competition and actually go do you know what I might not be feeling it but I'm going to I'll give you a couple of good efforts and then their their kind of central nervous system and their and their kind of competitive juices start flowing and they actually give you probably better outputs than initially would have been predicted because they're just bought into the the kind of competition culture, I guess, that you try to develop within your group. So they might feel they're coming in banged up, but they might actually leave being um, being invigorated and I guess being coerced by their peer group to to actually throw around a bit more weight than, than may have first been predicted. So they're kind of, their mood almost... Is about to put the brakes on their body but then the the vbt data almost shows them that their body is uh, actually more fresh than their mood is perhaps no absolutely and, and that is also a combination of actually some athletes may need a little bit longer to get going so they might spend a little bit more time doing their doing their preparation and actually as a as a result of that do less in the gym but of higher quality yeah so it might take them a bit longer to warm up because they've come in banged up but actually when they've when they've spent that little bit more time doing their mobility and doing their specific preparation, they actually start to feel a little bit better just by having that 10 or 15 minutes longer to prepare as opposed to coming in banged up and go, oh, I don't fancy it today. Actually, no, go and spend an extra 10 minutes doing some preparation work and then let's see how you feel. And then they've they've seen their their mates, you know, doing relatively well or coercing them to, you know, give us a, a full-blown effort and they give that full-blown effort and, yeah, surprise themselves with actually how how neuromuscularly fresh they they appear. And like you say, that might just be um, a mental rev up or a or a specific kind of get rid of some tightness, see the physio, whatever it may be, to to get what we need out of that athlete for that given day. But I think some of the VBT stuff there is great because the athlete's shown intent, the athlete's shown a level of competitiveness that's actually driven a little bit of um, output that's provided them with a, that stimulus that they need to create and drive that adaptation. So... I think the objectivity and the competitive piece is, is something worth noting. I think sometimes the tech and objective piece can be detached from the human factor, but I think this is actually a nice example of where the tech can actually help the human factor along. Um, yep, absolutely. In a complementary yeah. way. Yeah, absolutely. And drive, driving competitiveness is um, yeah something we should encourage. What's kind of something, I don't know if there is, but what's something, if there is in the sort of VBT space that you're, you're looking at at the moment or is there anything new and novel that you're kind of keeping an eye on um i'm not sure about novel but i think i mean i did mention it and i was talking to altis um a while back and it was one of those things that i i'm actually as a coach trying to search for solutions that are not detracting away from anything that the athlete does as a as a player and as a performer and i think one of the things that i've tried to do using velocity based training is get 
it's that minimum um, minimum effective dose almost kind of scenario and how how little can I do to maintain a strength quality, develop a strength quality and not impact negatively on the performer and the player? And I think that's my that's my kind of focus area. I haven't done any research on that, but that's one of the things that I certainly want to take into the 2021 kind of preseason with the Seattle Seawolves is um, how how can I do as little as possible and don't take that as a flippant response is how can I do as little as possible to have the maximum carryover to developing strength. And I know there's going to be a certain amount of volume that's required to do that anyway. I understand that, but also how, how little can I do to improve jumping, to improve sprinting, to improve resilience, to improve the strength qualities I'm after and almost, I mean, yeah, maybe I should, it should be a, a kind of research area that I could run concurrently to go, right. So-and-so did, you know, 20% less volume than they did last year, but still improve their strength. And that's what some of the academics are doing at the moment. How how the VBT versus PBT can, you know, how can you do half the work and still get the same results? That's the kind of solution that I want to bring to my team preparation because I know they've got to run. I know they've got to collide with each other. I know they've got to fly across continents. I know they've got to, you know, have the, the psychological um stress of preparing for collision and combat basically so is strength is strength training and power training actually contributing positively or is the is the stress of strength training actually affecting them negatively and we can obviously monitor that through our jump heights and our speed scores and our gps necessarily with the max v scores maybe and all those things and and try and overlap all of that sort of information yeah. That's the one thing that I would try and do, and I might encourage some of those researchers in VBT to to actually go how 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 small can the specific strength training stimulus be to elicit a positive outcome that we're happy with as strength and conditioning coaches that we know we've made a positive a positive um, you know impact on the on the player group that we're we're charged with trying to physically develop. Hmm. No, I think that's an interesting that'd be, point. That'd be mine. Yeah, how little is can we do one set, two sets, three sets? Or do we have to go down the traditional road of, you know, more exposure to strength training is is better? And, and where where does that kind of line, where is that line drawn in the sand to say, no, no, we can we can optimally dose with with less? Because I think we uh, get and, lean business models, but I don't think we're as good at lean training models if we if we use yeah, that, no, that. No, no, absolutely. And I think that's one thing I think all of us, all of us, especially who work in sport where long seasons and players are being exposed to, I guess, the monotony of training all the time. How can we, how can we provide the stimulus that they need without, like you say, having that impact mentally and, and, and physically on their, on their ability to recover and then subsequently perform again. I'm sure this question's a bit hard with the current climate, but what's coming up for you? What's the sort of end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021? What's, what's in store for you? Yeah, so I've got um, I've got one more VBT course in in the UK just outside the lockdown window, so that'll be good. And um, yeah, looking up the COVID compliant guidelines is something that's moving and the goalposts are moving all the time. Um, yeah, just looking at two two Pegasus events in 2021. So there's some, there's a few things bubbling under when it comes to the coach education side. It looks like as it stands, subject to change, obviously that there'll be one in the United States and one in the UK, which is quite an exciting um, revelation. I'll keep you posted on those two things. And then, um, yeah, going back to Seattle in January for Major League Rugby's 2021 season, which is going to start in March, but I'll be headed over for January and February in terms of the sort of pre-preparation period and 
no doubt at the, as it currently stands quarantining and and getting getting players ready for um for pre-season 2021 so yeah back over to the US for uh for the 2021 MLR season and then all being well the back end of 2021 world 10 series and uh yeah Bermuda 2.0 plus whatever <laughs> else whatever else they may or may not have um put in place by uh by August of 2021 so that's pretty much it mate Cool. And where's the best place for um, the listeners to find you or follow you? Yeah, uh, very originally, both Twitter and Instagram. I'm ChrisToomb71. But uh, yeah, you'll find me on, on both of those. I try and be as positive as possible and share some good information. So it's, uh, yeah, those two sites will probably be, the, or those two uh, platforms will be the best. Cool. Well, we'll, um, we'll link that in the show notes. But mate, it's always good to chat to you. And um, yeah, thank you for coming back on and, and kind of sharing an update on VBT and, and what you're up to. No, thanks for the invite. Much appreciated. I look forward to um, yeah, listening to more of your esteemed guests. I've been enjoying them so far. Perfect. Well, yourself included. So, um, no, good to catch up, mate. And you, mate. Cheers, Val. It was great to welcome Chris Toombs back onto today's show. If you head over to his Twitter handle, you can read his 250-word reflection on 25 years in the industry. And I encourage you to do your own and engage with his post on Twitter as well. Head over to our website, informperformance.com, for today's show notes. And don't forget to follow us on social media at informperformance for Instagram or informpod for Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's episode with me, Andy McDonald. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.